The Guardian. There have been many hurdles in the fight against COVID-19. We've needed to set up the infrastructure to test hundreds of thousands of people each day. We've had to search for therapeutic drugs to save the sickest patients. And we've had to design and trial effective vaccines. With these tools in hand, we are better prepared to get the virus under control and protect vulnerable populations. But it's not always a one-way fight. As with all viruses, SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind COVID-19, rapidly replicates once inside a host. And with each replication, there's a chance that part of its genetic code will mutate. Since they first sequenced the virus, scientists have been monitoring it for new mutations, carefully keeping watch to see if any of these changes mean it could spread faster, hide from our immune systems, or resist drugs and vaccines. Then, in November, scientists in the UK noticed that a new variant appeared to be rising fast in London and the southeast. Termed B117, studies showed that this new variant was around 50% more contagious, making it yet another challenge to face in the months ahead. So, what do we know about this and other variants of COVID-19? And how do we monitor mutations to see what could be coming down the line? We probably hadn't quite expected that the emergence of these variants with so many mutations all at once was a critical factor. And we've now learned that that's actually at least one of the things we should be on the lookout for, and indeed now we are. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Every day, lorries drive into the car park of the Sanger Institute, a genomics and genetics research institute in the UK, carrying containers of chilled samples. Around half a million samples arrive each week, sent from COVID test processing labs where PCR analysis is done. Some samples are positive, some negative. The positive ones are picked out for analysis in Sanger's labs. There, teams of researchers sequence the virus to monitor how it's mutating. One of those scientists is Jeff Barrett. One of the ones you can do is essentially culture the virus in a lab in some convalescent plasma from a you know recovered patient. And you can sort of try to watch evolution inside the lab to say, okay, we can see which mutations seem to confer some resistance. I'm Jeff Barrett. I'm currently the director of the COVID-19 Genomics Initiative at the Sanger Institute. I got Jeff on the line to ask him a bit more about virus mutations and how we're monitoring them. Jeff, before we get into the real details of this, we've heard a lot about the so-called UK variant of SARS-CoV-2 in recent weeks. First off, it would be good to understand what we mean by a new variant of a virus. What is a variant? Is it the same thing as a new strain? So these different terms are used um, sometimes interchangeably. When we call this a new variant, what we really mean is that all viruses accumulate mutations over time. And the same has been happening to SARS-CoV-2. And sometimes uh, when a particular set of mutations attracts enough attention, we want to designate it as a variant so that we can study it, talk about it. Sometimes people use the word strain. Typically in kind of virological circles, the word strain is used when a new variant has a demonstrably different phenotype in terms of its transmissibility or uh, the type of disease it causes or something like that. So we think it's really about um, showing that this particular accumulation of genetic mutations has changed something meaningful about the biology of the virus because 
most of the mutations that viruses develop don't really do anything to the the function of their genomes. They're just kind of little markers that serve as a kind of barcode we can use to track them and talk about them. How often do new variants arise? I mean, I remember early on in the pandemic, a lot of geneticists were saying that one good thing about SARS-CoV-2 was that it seemed to be mutating reasonably slowly. Yeah, that's right. We have seen pretty consistently that new mutations arise about once every two weeks, and that is slower than some other viruses that, that commonly infect humans. And so that does mean that we have a pretty good ability, generally speaking, to kind of watch these new mutations arise one by one or two by two. One of the things that actually became interesting about the observation of B.1.1.7 was actually there were, I think it's 22 mutations that arose. We don't know if, if they happened exactly at the same time, but certainly we, for the first time, observed a person with all of these mutations that hadn't been seen before. And that is pretty pretty unusual because, as I said, usually we kind of see these new things accumulate one by one. Take us through the, the sort of story of how that was first detected, that B117 variant. When was it first spotted and, and how did scientists come to the conclusion that it was probably more transmissible than other variants out there? So the first thing um, that I think is worth describing is that in the UK, we have quite a substantial amount of what we call genomic surveillance of the virus. And what I mean by that is that every week we sequence a few thousand virus genomes from individuals who have tested positive from around the UK, chosen essentially at random to just represent the geographic distribution of new cases in the UK. And that means we always kind of have a pair of binoculars out on the horizon looking to see what's coming. And to give you some sense of the scale, in the UK, we've we've now sequenced and shared publicly something like 170,000, I think, SARS-CoV-2 genomes. And that's more than half of all of the publicly shared genomes in the world. So the UK really set out to do this at scale. And what that meant is that we could see that the very first observation of, the, of what we now call B.1.1.7 was actually a couple of individuals uh, in late September. But because we're sequencing so many thousands, it's quite difficult to make a, a sort of strong statement about any one or two new genome sequences that we see. And so it was really in the middle of December when by that time we had accumulated quite a large number, several hundred observations of, of this new variant. And a few things happened all around the same time. First of all, of course, the public health authorities were already investigating the rapid rise in uh, new cases in the southeast of England and trying to understand what was driving that. The second thing that was observed as part of that work, they noticed that, in fact, many of the cases in the southeast of England and indeed in uh, the east of London were of this particular variant, B.1.1.7. The next clue that was kind of observed uh, was, as I alluded to, that B.1.1.7 appeared with a large number of mutations in a short period of time. And some of those mutations are in the spike protein, which is the protein the virus uses to bind to human cells. And so it, uh, it's also the target of all of the vaccines that have currently been approved. So it's one that we kind of watch more carefully. And so as the, these individual clues started to build up, we realized this was something to watch a bit more carefully. And then Actually, things developed pretty rapidly in the in the subsequent week or 10 days where the evidence really built that this new variant was, in fact, responsible for the faster spread that we first saw in the Southeast and London, and then over time 
really spreading throughout the UK. Tell us then about the work that goes on to try and understand what it is about these genetic changes that may be responsible for making it more transmissible. There's really two types of research that go on in parallel. Uh, The first, the one that I've been more involved in, is statistical and epidemiological modeling. So by studying the growth rates, as we observe in the data, of the new variant and other, you know, the older variants of the virus, and see whether in different places there's a consistent picture that the new variant grows faster. Because the nature of exponentially growing outbreaks is that sometimes just some random genetic variant gets lucky and happens to kind of ride a new surge up to become very common. And this, in fact, happened back in the summer when around Europe rates were quite low, and a particular variant that is believed to have originated in Spain uh, subsequently spread to many different countries in Europe. But it's thought now that that wasn't because of any biological change, but just because it happened to be the case that people probably went on holiday, the virus traveled back with them, and then uh, as the sort of epidemic started to get worse again, that that was the variant that happened to ride to the top. So our first question is, can we can we show that things are different for B.1.1.7? And the way we do that is to look at different local areas. And so each time B.1.1.7 gets to a new place, we can ask what happens. And what we saw was just extremely consistent evidence that it would spread faster than whatever variants were circulating in those regions before it arrived. And two different analyses, one led by the European Bioinformatics Institute and the other by uh, Imperial College London, came to basically the same conclusion. This new variant grows about 50%. There's some wiggle room around that estimate faster than previous variants. And in particular, it was still growing even during the the November period of, of national lockdown in England. So other versions seem to be being suppressed and decreasing during that period, whereas B.1.1.7 was growing. And that's what I think was one of the concerning things, because of course, it means we need more strict, as we have now, measures to try to keep this new variant in check. The other kind of experiment, which is which is ongoing and is really quite different, is to study this new variant in the lab and to basically do experiments where in human cells in a dish, you test, can the new variant infect them faster or replicate faster? And that takes inevitably a bit more time because you have to set up these experiments. And I hope that probably in the next few weeks, we'll get the first readouts from those experiments, which will give us a bit more biological information about what's different about this new variant. There is this really strange thing about this variant, whereby all of these mutations are seen for the first time altogether. It seems out of the blue. I guess that must talk to the fact that we're not sequencing every um, virus you know, from people that test positive. But does it say anything about how this may have arisen? We don't know for sure. And we don't know of the first individual that we happened to have sequenced back in September, how close they were to the actual first patient with this particular variant of the virus. But one thing that has been observed totally separately to our work tracking this variant is a number of case reports, I think there are about six or seven in the literature now, of individuals who have chronic infection with SARS-CoV-2. So they they basically are infected for, say, a period of a few months and can't quite clear the virus. And there's various reasons why that sometimes happens. And these reports have shown that when the virus is sitting in one person for a long time like that, it has the opportunity to accumulate lots of mutations like this. And in fact, in some cases, the mutations look very similar to the ones we see in B.1.1.7. For example, specific mutations in the spike protein have been observed in these case reports that are also in the, in the new variant. So our hypothesis, and this hasn't been proven, 
is that the new variant may have arisen in a chronic infection like that. Usually, these don't seem to then be transmitted on out of the initial patient and, and into circulation. And indeed, this is the first time we think that such a variant has then go on to circulate more widely in the population. I'm wondering if that, that suggests that it's evolved in, in some sense, perhaps to avert either the immune response or to immune treatments like convalescent plasma, things like that. And I'm wondering if there's any anything showing up in, in data around reinfections, whether we know that people are more likely to be reinfected with the B117 variant than with the older variants. That's a very important question that, that's been carefully looked at. Um, the only data that I've seen so far was released by Public Health England, where they did a really nice analysis where they created a a matched cohort of about 2,000 individuals with the new variant and 2,000 infected with older variants. And by matched cohort, I mean those older variant cases were matched on things like age, sex, the day they were infected, the approximate location in the country where they came from. So you try to eliminate any biases between the two groups. And they looked at two things between those two groups. And one was um, reinfection, as you've said, and they showed it was small numbers, but they showed no difference in the reinfection rate of the new variant and the old variants. It was pretty compelling that at least, to me at least, that it rejected a hypothesis where fundamentally this was this new variant was spreading by reinfecting tons of people. You know, that was its fundamental advantage. That just doesn't seem to be supported by the data. The other thing they looked at in that same set was admissions to hospitals and deaths. Does this new variant cause a more severe form of disease? And again, numbers weren't quite big enough to be absolutely sure, but there was no different scene. So reassuring at least that you know, we kind of dodged that bullet that it, it's theoretically possible it could have been more transmissible and deadlier, and that doesn't seem to be the case. I wonder if we could talk about the other variant that's been getting a lot of attention recently, which is known as the 501v2 or B1351 variant, which was first detected in South Africa. What do we know about this variant? How does it differ from the one that's dominating in the UK at the moment? It has a few things in common with the UK one. So it again has this appearance that it was detected suddenly with a large number of mutations, again, including several in the spike protein. South Africa does a smaller, they do quite a good amount of sequencing, but a smaller amount than the UK. So it's harder to say whether they arose all at once or not. As I mentioned in the UK, we, we tend to see every new mutation or pair of mutations because we sequence so much. So we're a little bit less sure, but it's at least plausible that it has a similar kind of origin story to uh, the B117 variant. There seems to be some evidence, although I think um, the numbers aren't quite as big as they are in the UK yet, that it is more transmissible than previous variants. And it does share um, a couple of mutations with the UK one, even though they arose totally independently of each other, probably the most notable of which is this N501Y in the spike protein which is one of the ones of interest in the in the lineage that arose in the UK and has also been studied in the lineage that arose in South Africa, 1.351. There's also a potential concern, and I think this is only hypothetical at the moment, but it's one that, for example, Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, alluded to. Another of the mutations that is on B.1.351 is so-called E484K in the spike protein, and that's one which has come up in a couple of totally independent papers as potentially being involved in immune escape. So this is a thing we kind of talked a little bit about before. It would be a, a worrying issue. 
I don't think there's any hard and fast data about whether this new variant does have that property or not. But because previous publications had flagged this particular position, it kind of immediately went towards the top of the list of things we should watch carefully and, and do future experiments on. Jeff, perhaps you can tell us a bit more about vaccine escape mutations. How is it that vaccines can potentially encourage the emergence of new variants? Well, fundamentally, selection is pushing the virus to be able to infect more people. And as we vaccinate lots and lots of individuals, then those people will not be available new hosts for infection. So it's possible that mutations that otherwise would have made the virus less transmissible or in some way less fit if they can allow it to better infect people who have been vaccinated, then those mutations become positively selected. They are advantageous to the, to the virus now. And so what that means is that as the number of vaccinated individuals with immunity grows, then the opportunism for those mutations increases. And there's been some discussion about whether the UK's plan to delay the second doses could encourage the kind of thing you're talking about. Is that similar to raising the risk of antibiotic resistance by not finishing your course of, of penicillin from the GP? I think there are some reasons why it's slightly less of a worry for vaccines than it is for antibiotics. And I think there is certainly a debate among scientists about exactly this issue and the, the pros and cons of changing the, the dosing schedule of vaccines. Chris Witte said that, you know, in an ideal world, of course, if we had infinite vaccines, we would follow the dosing schedule exactly as had been done in the clinical trials. But we don't live in that world. And so some decisions have to be made. And I think they seem to have got a pretty strong uh, view that on the balance of risks, that getting as many individuals vaccinated early as possible is a worthwhile thing to do. I think we have to keep our surveillance going. And there's many different ways in which this needs to be watched. But hopefully to have an early warning, essentially, if there seems to be any adverse consequences of changing the vaccine dosing regimens. Jeff, when you talk about the analyses you do as these huge numbers of viral sequences are read, I'm, I'm not sure how you really know what to look for if um, you don't really know how the virus is going to mutate and, and what mutations might be problematic. What do you do? Do you just look for things that, that aren't normal or um, do you actually have targets, things you know will be problematic in advance? It's a great question and, and we are learning as we go along. For example, we, we probably hadn't quite expected that the emergence of these variants with so many mutations all at once was a critical factor. And we've now learned that that's actually at least one of the things we should be on the lookout for. And indeed, now we are. There are other examples where in specific mutations, we've talked about a couple of them that have separate laboratory evidence that they might be interesting. And so we should just always be on the lookout for those. We have this kind of catalog of things we look out for, and we keep learning new things about the virus over time. And we add those to the, to the active surveillance. One thing that has been absolutely amazing to me as someone who's been both in industry and in academia involved in, in scientific research for 20 years is just the speed at which scientific progress is being made and which data are being shared. I think everybody knows this in the, in the case of vaccines, which have been developed super, super fast. But in many other areas, including genomics, we try to share these data in real time. When we have discoveries, we post summaries as rapidly as we can. And I, I happen to know that, you know, individuals in in the companies that make the vaccines, for example, have already picked up on these new 
variants and begun to try to study them in their own labs about whether their vaccines will continue to be effective. And the fact that that has happened in a matter of days from the initial discovery is a real testament to the collaborative nature and hard work of scientists around the world during this pandemic. Jeff, good luck with the with the surveillance ahead. It looks like it's going to be incredibly important. So huge thanks for coming and explaining. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jeff Barrett, Director of the COVID-19 Genomics Initiative at the Wellcome Sanger Institute, where scientists are continuing to sequence positive samples of the virus and carefully monitor its mutations. On Thursday, we're going to return to the question of how viruses mutate and delve further into one of the issues Jeff raised on today's episode, escape mutants. The virus has made a genetic mistake and the protein code has changed and so the spike appearance has changed and that spike appearance change leads to an antibody that you make if it's less able to identify and lock on to that spike protein and disable it. So that enables the virus to, let's say, escape. That's on Thursday when Sarah Bosley will be talking to Ravi Gupta, Professor of Clinical Microbiology at the University of Cambridge. I hope you can join us. Until then, stay safe. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.